that pushed the socialist movement along in this country. The foundation of the Federal Reserve System was another one. That was in, in 1910 was when it came together. Woodrow Wilson, then president, signed it into law around 1912, 13, something like that. Uh, the World Wars were also uh, a major in, influence in growing the federal government, growing uh, the status control of things. Uh, one of the things that socialists thrive on is chaos and disruption and fear. And certainly war does all of that. And they look... Welcome back to the Joe Mobley Show. I am Joe Mobley, your host and the original uncloseted conservative. Guys, thanks for being with us here this last day of January. Guys, we got an awesome interview with an awesome guest. He is a veteran news reporter, president of Save America's Freedom, and the author of a hit novel that you got to check out. Guys, the link is right below while you're liking, sharing, subscribing, doing all that stuff, all you got to do is click the link with your finger. It'll say Memphis, the Rock DC uncovers conspiracy. Rock DC uncovers. I wrote that wrong. Let's see here. There we go. Let's get it on the screen for you guys. Uh, the book is Memphis Rock DJ uncovers conspiracy behind Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. Check out the book today. We are speaking with the author, the one and only Mr. Mike Hambrick. Mike, how are you? I'm just grand, Joe. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. It's a privilege to be here. Oh, it's my pleasure. You know, I just realized when you you type up show notes and you're going through scripts, but your brain, if there's something you say often, your brain won't catch it. And I say uncovered DC so often because I have their reporters on the show all the time. Uh -huh. uh, Tracy Beans' news outlet. Great coverage. Um, but I got stuck saying Uncover DC, Uncover DC. But your book is Memphis Rock DJ Uncovers. <laughs> That's right. It um, You don't write uh, fiction, as you know, Joe, without it being semi-autobiographical. And this certainly is, although I do take a literary license since it is fiction. But in, in, in a large sense, it's, it's historical fiction. Uh, it's it, it's kind of got a story to it. I, this is actually uh, the first of two novels, and um, I was writing what now will be the second novel, uh, "Dance with the Devil." And uh, those that were close to me and familiar with my broadcast career, going all the way back to teenage years when I was a, a rock and roll DJ, that and the Memphis sound. I was working in Memphis at the time. And the Memphis sound was was really big at that point, and artists and musicians were coming from all over the country to record there in studios to kind of capture the Memphis sound. So there was a lot of that activity and and, and dynamism going on at the time. Uh, certainly, the the two most significant events I suppose of my generation were were going on the civil rights movement and the Vietnam War, and they they collided in, in this book uh, and resulted in the, um, in the death of Martin Luther King Jr. I, and I was there in 68 as a real person uh, when Martin Luther King was killed. So I kind of have that experience. I, wow. It was, I was, you know, a pretty inexperienced kid coming out of Northeast Texas and all of a sudden, you know, I was working seven to midnight and I had to have a special dispensation to be on the streets in Memphis. It was a curfew and I was going through, you know, National Guard stops and there were armed jeeps and soldiers on, on the streets, which was a real eye opener to me because of uh, the post Martin Luther King assassination reaction. Um, and, and not only in Memphis, but in cities around the country. So I knew that I was going to have to write and, and deal with the Martin Luther King assassination, but I didn't know quite how. And so I started doing a lot of research and uh, spent a, a good deal of time over a year researching. 
and came across multiple conspiracy theories. Uh, and this is a compilation of those that I think are the most credible that have documented uh, sworn depositions. New documents have been uh, coming forward because of FOIA. And it, um, my conspiracy is very far reaching. It's many disparate groups coming together that ordinarily would not be in concert with each other in any shape, form, or fashion, but they came together over one common cause for different reasons, but a common cause of taking Martin Luther King off the board, assassinating Martin Luther King. And these disparate groups range from, I believe, Lyndon Johnson's White House, certainly the president at the time, uh, this is April 1968. Um, the uh, J. Edgar Hoover had been hounding and 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 monitoring, wiretapping, and videoing and taking photos, just monitoring uh, Martin Luther King since 1955. He thought he was uh, and openly said that he was a communist and that he was the single most dangerous. Uh, black man in America to, uh, as a threat, as far as a threat to the security of the country, and the the thing, if you if you look at the '60s, the decade of the '60s, there were four significant uh, assassinations. Of course, John F. Kennedy, President John F. Kennedy, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, and then R Robert F. Kennedy, and these four individuals had a lot of things in common. They were national and internationally known individuals. They were tremendously influential orators. It had a tremendous following of people. Martin Luther King had just recently won the Nobel Prize, so he was truly on the international stage, as was the president, of course. Um, and they could they were great orators. They could move huge chunks of people in in any direction they really wanted them to go. And the single thing that they had in common, which led to their assassination, according to my writing, was that, that they were um, all opposed to the Vietnam War. Mm. And it's the age-old adage of follow the money. The military-industrial complex did not want the war to end for obvious financial gain and reasons. And these four individuals were a threat to to that financial flow of money for war material and tanks and bullets and guns and troops and the whole nine yards. So they wanted that to continue. And so they, they just actually, they took these people out. That's the government, I'm firmly convinced, did that. Uh, Coretta Scott King, Martin Luther King's widow, before she passed, uh, publicly said that she believed that her assassin, uh, the assassination of her husband was a government conspiracy at the highest level, she said, and that James Earl Ray, the patsy, was not the shooter. Hmm. She became convinced of that as well. The, the other thing that King had that was a threat and viewed as a, as a major uh, uh, threat to the, to the establishment, to the government, particularly Washington people, uh, J. Edgar Hoover, and the president, he had a, 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 a march a plan for 500,000. It was a poor people's march, as it was so labeled. Uh, 500,000 people coming to set up a tent city on the mall in Washington and protest the war in Vietnam, protest. At that time, there were uh, there was the, a lot of money was being spent on the Vietnam War, and it was pulling money away from social programs, particularly for minorities, and also an inordinate amount number of young African-American men were being drafted into the war, and uh, King was protesting that. He delivered a, a speech in 1967, I think, uh, at the uh, in a church in, in uh, New York City, Riverside Baptist Church, where he just eviscerated the, the government, its policies, and the, how the government was not responding to the needs of of the people, it was it was a it was an astounding speech, and uh, it was what put the nail in his coffin, if you will. 
and it was a, a conspiracy that was put together, as I say, in, involved the CIA, the FBI, the Dixie Mafia, Carlos Marcello's Mafia in New Orleans, the Klan, and the racist uh, mayoral uh, mayor of, of, of Memphis at the time, Henry Loeb, the racist members of the uh, Memphis Police Department, and military intelligence. They all came together and had meetings, and they were called, strangely enough, cruelly, they were called prayer meetings. And they were called prayer meetings because J. Edgar Hoover had what he referred to as a prayer list. And on that list were three sets of initials, JFK, MLK, and RFK. Wow. You come to your own conclusions and i did in in in, in memphis and you can you can get the book i don't know what you, what graphic you put up for it but you can go to uh, hambrickmedia.com which is a, it's kind of a landing page for the book book baby is the publisher you can go to bookbaby.com and search it out but it's much easier to go to hambrickmedia.com there's a video that i did there kind of explaining the book the history and there's some excerpts from it and you can read i forget how many chapters but a few chapters of the book to get an idea of what it is it's a pretty neat site and uh, i encourage you of course to go do that hambrickmedia.com to to check it out but the the thing that that i think might be interesting to talk about that i do i i'm doing a lot of of media interviews uh i'm very privileged and blessed to be doing that. And, and we talk about a lot of things. I, I think that this, the, the assassination of those four individuals uh, is a perfect example of a much larger problem that we're facing now, faced then, and it's gotten much worse since 1968. And that is the, the socialist movement in this country that I have traced back, and I've started a nonprofit foundation called Save America's Freedom Foundation. Um, and you can go there at saveamericasfreedom.org. And I have traced, I've, I've traced back the beginnings of the, um, the socialist revolution in this country that began in earnest, as I traced it back, um, in 19... Uh, 1902, the turn, right at the turn of the century. And it has uh, grown exponentially since then. And it was started by a, a very capable, smart, dedicated group of individuals who were committed to uh, taking away uh, the freedoms that we all take for granted in America. And they've, they've been very successful at it. In fact, I think they have been successful. If you, if you check the boxes of what is a socialist government, Joe, uh, uh, America certainly survives uh, or, or, or it, it, uh, it meets the requirement of what is a socialist government. And they've, they've, they've done this not in the traditional European sense of a socialist revolution, uh, which is bloody and going and nationalize businesses. <clears throat> People wonder, you know, what is it about socialism? Uh, it, it never works. If you look at the history of socialism, look back at the 20th century. It was responsible for the deaths of upwards of 100 million people. If you look at Lenin and Stalin and Mao Zedong, Pol Pot, uh, Hitler, uh, all of the isms, fascism, communism, socialism, they all end up being uh, tyrants. And millions of people, hundreds of millions of people, uh, died as a result of it. You wonder why people don't look at that and say, hey, wait a minute, that it, it never works. It hasn't worked. Um the other we just, aspect we of, haven't tried it the right way, Mike. We haven't tried the right socialism. It'll, it'll work that time. Yeah, you're you're exactly right. That is what they're saying. That we're smarter than they were in the 20th century, and we we will we we will do it better. We can achieve utopia. Well, 
as you well know, that's just not even, it's not possible to do that. Uh, you know, wake up and accept it. All things, all people are not equal. They're getting, should have an equal opportunity, but you cannot guarantee an equality of outcome and, and have it work. It just, it just doesn't. You can, history says that. There's and that's what we've tried. A book on that called, and I, I get some looks when I put it on the coffee table. It's called Equal is Unfair. Yeah. Uh, by Yaron Brook. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's a, it's a head turning book, but you're absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't work socially. It doesn't work uh, culturally. It doesn't work economically. I mean, Margaret Thatcher, who saved the UK from socialism back in the 80s, uh, 70s and 80s, um, I think she said something like, yeah, socialism is is wonderful until you run out of money. Uh, <laughs> and, and you certainly yeah. eventually do. I mean, look at, we've spent in this country, Joe, since uh, Lyndon Johnson's Great Society, uh, $22 trillion on social programs. There were key things that happened uh, along the way that that led to the this socialist revolution in the country. As I say, it, it started back in 1902. The guy who was kind of the intellectual thrust of it at the time was Herbert Crowley. Um, he started the effort in earnest. Um, he founded the, uh, the New Republic magazine, which was highly read by far leftist people and it was very influential uh as i say there was significant major events that pushed the socialist movement along in this country the foundation of the federal reserve system was another one that was in, in 1910 was when it came together woodrow wilson then president signed it into law around 1912 13 something like that uh the world wars were also uh, a major in, influence in growing the federal government, growing uh, the status control of things. Uh, one of the things that socialists thrive on is chaos and disruption and fear. And certainly war does all of that. And they look to the federal government for nurturing, for help, for all the answers. Then, of course, you had World War II. Uh, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's uh, New Deal, was a, just transformed Washington historically. You look back at it. Washington was kind of a sleepy little town. And this was the beginning of the huge bureaucracy and social programs uh, of America. Um, go to Johnson's, Lyndon Johnson's Great Society, who was a protege of FDR. Uh, and, and and just move forward from there, all of the major government expansions, the government agencies, the, the FDA, the FTC, the SEC, all of those are, are designed to control and manipulate how people live and, and what they do. And they are direct assaults and attacks on freedom at, at, at every level. Um, unfortunately, so much of the, the political discussion today is it's it's political economic or political speak that goes on instead of things that are moral things that are good things that are that are significant in american history and significant in the the um, the greatness of western civilization we we don't talk about these things anymore because one of the things that the socialists have been successful at doing is establishing moral relevancy, that there, there is no right and wrong. I'm okay if you're okay. All of those and all of the isms, the woke movement, the BLM, all of those movements through the years, and they're not alone. I mean, they've, we've had those all through the history of this socialist revolution in America, uh, are designed to create that chaos that we spoke of, create uncertainty, create divisiveness, pit people against each other, make people angry, uh, and and not come to any kind of collective understanding on anything. Because it's if you don't think the way that I think, they automatically you're you're rejected. So 
that's not the traditional American way, but that's what the socialists have, have been successful in, in, in accomplishing. So we don't talk about things that really matter anymore, and the media only pays attention, mainstream media and most media, uh, only pay attention to the symptoms of the disease that I've defined as socialism and, and not the disease. And that's by design. All of the print and the ink and the airtime and the discussion is on, you know, this little firefight over here and this little fire over here. And it's a distraction from really marshalling together forces to start what I think is necessary, humbly say, um, a counter-revolution. I think we've gotten to the point, as I say, if you look at the boxes of what socialism is, check those boxes. America is a socialist company. They, they have actually won this revolution. So I'm referring to it as a counter-revolution. Uh, and it goes against the grain of what is normal, classic conservative. Um, mostly conservatives have been laissez-faire. They take care of their situation and they go about building companies and businesses, employing people, paying their mortgage, sending their kids to school, and making a life for themselves. Well, that's all well and good, and that's a great product to have, but what's been happening over on the other side, the left, if you will, taking advantage of all the freedoms they've built a socialist revolution to destroy those freedoms. And what has to happen is we have to admit that, I think, Joe. We have to admit that we have actually lost this battle. We have, all intents and purposes, lost this country as it relates to freedom, basic Judeo-Christian ethics and morals, which this country was, was based on. They, they have been marginalized, demonized, and ridiculed, and, and basically taken off the board. God has been taken out of the, the equation. Prayer in school has been taken out of the occasion. Uh, uh, everything in reference to what made America and Western civilization great is, is has, uh, for all intents and purposes, is not there in minds and in the, in the, uh, people as they view the history of this country. And that's all by design, to keep people from having any real connection to what made this country great. Those that made this country great and Western civilization great are marginalized and demonized, ridiculed, they're oppressors, they're racist, they're misogynists, whatever ism you want to put on them, our, our definition or name tag that's negative has been done. And that's been done at all levels. It's done in the media. It's done in culture. If it, it said those who, who control the image of culture control culture. Well, certainly, broadly speaking, New York and Los Angeles certainly control the cultural image, uh, by and large, in, in, in this country, uh, which has been pretty much an attack on, on, to, to a large degree to, on the greatness of America. They've taken the control of the education system and dumbed down. We don't teach the greatness of Western civilization anymore. I remember back in the late 80s that the former Secretary of Education, Bill Bennett, under Ronald Reagan's administration, debated the president of, of Stanford. And the, 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 the topic of the debate was whether or not Western civilization should continue to be part of the curriculum taught at, at Stanford. Yeah. Bill Bennett, smart guy, capable guy, lost the debate as far as what Stanford ended up doing. They continued to teach Western civilization, but they taught it from the point of view of what, you, what I just defined, that it was a, not a... Western civilization is the greatest thing on the planet since the birth of Christ. I mean, it, 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 for the majority of the time men have been on this planet, they have not been free. Ronald Reagan said this experiment in freedom and democracy is very fragile and it's just one generation away from destruction where well, we're about five generations behind the eight ball as far as understanding and and dealing with this socialist revolution and i have in in my research have found that this is not just democrats no matter who's been in control of 
power in Washington since the early 1900s, whether the control of Congress, House of Representatives, or the Senate, or who's in the White House, Democrat or Republican. We've gotten to this point. We, the socialist revolution has been, as I say, for all practical purposes, successful. We've lost our freedoms. The economy is, is just, is, the national debt is crazy. We've spent $22 trillion on social programs since Lyndon Johnson's Great Society, which is one of the, you know, bullet points along the way towards socialism, one of the great large bullet points. Oh, yeah. $22 trillion on social programs, and by the indices, Joel, of the very people who are charged with implementing those policies, their annual reports, they don't, the, the programs don't work. I mean, if you look at the results, th there've been some improvements here and there, but nothing on, on, on the scale that would justify continuing to spend $22 million. And we're talking about infant mortality, drug abuse, single family homes, uh, crime, uh, uh, education, uh, it, 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 it continues to drop. We're no longer the number one country in, 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 in leadership roles that we used to, used to be. Uh, it, it, and, and there's no denying that. And that just didn't happen. It just didn't pop up out of the ether. There was an intense effort, concentrated, continuing, relentless effort to destroy America. That's why this is where we are today. And as I say, the system is broken. You put Republicans or Democrats, no matter who's been in control, mm -hmm. the government in debt has increased, the size of government, the institutions and legislation that rob us of our freedoms have only increased. The legal system is, is you know, it's upside down. It's, and and we've, we've established what has been established is a political class, a professional politician. And they stay there and they don't want to leave. And, they, and, and it's rare that they do leave until they're ready to. It's so hard to, to you know, uh, defeat in an election an incumbent politician. So the, the, they get elected and they go and do, and they know they're going to be reelected because on the campaign trail every two years or every six years, they'll tell people what they want to hear and, you know, jet them up. Uh, as as uh, H.L. Mencken referred to the to the uh, electorate as the uh, bewildered herd, you know, you just take the, say what they want you want here, get elected, and then you go about your business of creating a socialist program and a socialist government and increasing the size of the government. Even though you say, "Oh, we want smaller taxes, we want a smaller government, we want less taxes, we don't want the government regulations," I'm going to bring back. No, it doesn't happen. It doesn't. The system, uh, it, it, the, the the bureaucracy is so deep and so entrenched that it and, and it just doesn't happen. And then the people who are there, and there are exceptions, few, but there are exceptions. That they're there to take advantage of of the system. They're there to feed at the federal trough. That's what they do. Uh, do you ever notice those things that you laid out are not true? of the political elites, the education outcomes, the the net worth, the poverty outcomes, all of those social outcomes that you laid out brilliantly, those things are not true of them and their families, their children. When you look at property ownership, net worth, educational, not just opportunity, but the education outcomes and the, the system they've created for everyone else, they lie kind of funnily, kind of ironically, outside of it. You ever notice that? Oh, well, of course. I mean, uh, the very idea, I mean, it's a great point. Uh, the first person that comes to mind is is Nancy Pelosi, who was uh, the speaker, <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, twice the speaker of the House, um, a historic icon. Um, and she, you know, has press conferences or gives speeches or, you know, touts certain legislation as, I'm for the people, I'm for the, you know... The, the woman has made $200 million since she's been in Washington. You know, yeah. it's, it, it's just incredible. They, they'd have no concept, not really. No, no. 
practical on, on her behalf. It is. It is because her husband is quite the stock trader. Uh-huh. Uh, that that. Do you think he gets any side? Do you think he gets some inside information? Do you think maybe? Uh, he must have one heck of a prayer closet because he he calls. Well, him. <laughs> yeah, I, I I I would find it hard to believe if he didn't benefit financially yeah. from the information flow that Nancy has. As, it, as, it'd be so, miraculous. It, yeah. it, it, I try not to use the word unbelievable because just about everything is believable. Yeah. Uh, but if he had not received outside help, that would be unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's so, you know, it's so true of all of them. And then you look at where the real power is. The, um, the council on foreign relations represents from my observation, what is commonly called the deep state. There was a little bit of history on that, if, if we have time. There was a, 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 an organization back, once again, in the turn of the century uh, that was imported into this country from the UK called the Fabian Society. And um, the Fabian Society was named after a Roman general, Maximus Fabius, who battled Hannibal, defeated Hannibal, and... He, he was the first known person to, to use attrition and guerrilla warfare, not your standard Roman military tactics, to uh, he well, used he, patience. He was a farmer, right? Not a soldier? Uh, yeah. I mean, he, he was, but he became, he became this, you know, historic figure. Um. So the, the, the folks in the UK named their socialist group after Fabius because they too were very patient and, 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 and uh, preached the idea of being patient and working slowly through government and legislation and uh, culture and influence and all of that. Uh, that was imported, that concept and group was imported from the UK here it was it was called it's called the Council on Foreign Relations. So what and and members of the Fabian Society were members of in the power positions, uh, the PMs and the uh, 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 all of the the the, the uh, industrial, financial, and political leaders uh, of the UK were involved in the. Uh, or many of them, in the Fabian Society. And it's the same here. I mean, if you look at the roster, uh, just start with, um, I, I, I don't know, um, you, you just pick a name of somebody that's wealthy and in, in, influential, and chances are they have been or will be a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Yeah. Soros is one name that pops up as, as, as a leadership. Uh, they're all uh, leaders in industry and technology and entertainment and, and politics and uh, diplomacy, uh, just you name it. And you, you read their website and you read information about it. You have to kind of be very discriminant as you read and read between the lines and behind the pages. It sounds like they're this, um, wonderful organization designed to maintain freedom and the, the, the democratic Republic and all of that. And what, the, but what their real goal is, is a, is a one world government. And there are those that believe that when, when gov America falls, that it is the last bastion internationally of, of, of freedom, uh, and the one world government will follow as a result of America falling. And the United Nations and its structure will basically step in to be the one world bureaucracy. And it's already there. They have the bureaucracy. They have uh, uh, their footprint is in on every country on the planet. They have a military. They have an economic system. They're just ready to be the one world government. And I know that there are a lot of people out there, maybe not your listeners, but there are people out there that anybody who says that 
me included, uh, is, is a right-wing conservative conspiratorial wingnut, you know. I don't think I am. I'm not, I'm not raging in I, in, I think you laid crazy. out a very well-storied and well-reasoned argument. Um, and I'll tell you, after you finish this point, I'll tell you the largest reason why I agree and see, see if this uh, information's in your, your uh, analysis as well. Well, I, I'm anxious to hear that. The only, and I'll be quick. I, the only thing I was going to say, I, I think I'm a fairly reasoned fellow. And I know that I've spent a lot of time reading and researching. And I don't come to the research with, a, with my mind already made up. I come pretty much to try to disprove what I am thinking and believing. Uh, and I found that I couldn't. Uh, it, it, un, unless I put on ideological blinders it's real easy and it's it's part of their weapon and i'll be i want to hear what you were going to say and i'll just say this right quickly um it's easy particularly with millennials a little older millennials a little younger a younger audience to engage in the fervor of the socialist movement particularly when they haven't been taught the history of it you know the the charge we can go ahead. We're going to create utopia. It's going to be beautiful. Join this fight. Move forward to what is going to be the best thing in the world. And then over here, conservatives are saying, well, let's hit the pause button here a second. Let's think this through. There's some things here we want to conserve, if you will, that made this country and the world a better place. We don't want to just throw those away. So that's not as easy to get on the bandwagon with that. But so what, what conservatives really do have to do, I think Joe is to first of all, realize that there is a problem and that we have not just a problem. I think they have to admit that by all practical purposes, we have lost this country to the socialists. So we have to admit that and then be about the counter revolution and being just as active and dedicated and uh, always on the fight as the progressive socialists have been for the last 120 some odd years. We have to do that. Mm. Now, give me your analysis. I'm anxious to hear it, please. Well, I, I couldn't agree more. And thank you for laying out that case, um, which is it's historically rich, but also the tying in the philosophical basis and the even the theological, and people don't like to hear it, the theological basis for what this country is and what this country has done for the arc of human history. Um, but, you know, when you talk about the Council of Foreign Relations, and I've heard, um, I've heard other people break down analyses of, of those relationships with the big tech oligarchs. Um, sometimes they're called the nameless, faceless rulers, if you will. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons that I agree with you that they've really moved the ball tremendously upfield. Um, and, and you said the word, you know, deep state and, and most people have a problem articulating it. But when I was a child, I remember explicitly the teacher's name was Miss Mason. I don't know her first name because that was a time where we weren't uh, learning teachers first names and hearing about their uh you know, uh, their hobbies, their extracurricular hobbies. Right, right. It was a different time then, but I remember being fearful about um, control and and uh, the distribution of power and asking questions there in high school. And I remember her saying that the way that our system of government is set up with the checks, the balances, uh, the decentralized powers all across this huge force with disinterested government bodies, um, she said it would be incredibly difficult. Um, and she said, so long as no individual has a radical or drastic influence on all of those moving parts, then, then we're fine. Well, I remember that assuring me as a child. And then I learned that there, there's this um, government grade called SES, Senior Executive Service Member. Mm -hmm. So this is an employee who's a, um, a chief of staff, a deputy chief of staff, a director, a deputy director, 
these kinds of guys and gals. When Obama comes in the office, there are a thousand of them supporting all of the work of the entire federal government. When he left office, there were 7,000. So the quick math on that is yeah, right. he brought in 6,000 senior executive service members. And when I tell people these are your permanent state rulers, these are the Dr. Fauci's, but not of the CDC, of Department of State and Energy and Education and Parks and for the entire federal government. And the moment that I learned that, it sent a, sh a shiver down my spine for exactly the case that you laid out. Mm -hmm. the, the socialist overtaking happened right under our noses. And I, as a millennial, you know, I'm, I'm 30, I'm 30 something. I'm in my mid thirties. <laughs> um, and I to take some responsibility. All of this was done right under our noses. Well, um, it was so done. I, under I mine too. It's been going on for a while. It's because of the advances in communication and, and the, and the technology overall, it, it, it has, gotten on steroids i mean it's it's moving at yeah. light speed now uh but that we can also use that and for our own benefit if we get this revolution counter revolution concept accept it understand that this is what has to be done if you value america the situation that your teacher <clears throat> pardon me the situation your teacher laid out uh w w should 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 have been the truth yeah but what it what she, what she took for granted was that all those people were about freedom freedom of individual individual rights uh, uh, smaller government reduced government overreach and taxes that's what traditional america and I don't mean, when I say that, today, uh, that's another thing. They take control of the language and, and define it. When you say traditional America, the people who are negative on Trump are the people, even the people who are positive on Trump. If you say traditional America, you think Donald Trump. You don't think the founding fathers. You don't think Ronald Reagan. You don't think of the people who made this country great with great sacrifice uh you think of the caricatures that the media once again those who control the image of culture control culture so they certainly control the culture so she, but she, she was not a, i would assume she would the checks and balances gives me the <clears throat> the indication that that was back when everybody was was playing the same game and we're and we were all on the same using the same playbook called the constitution that's not true anymore yeah this was pre 9-11 so pre dhs and patriot act and yeah that was just things. once again never let a good crisis go to waste yeah. that was Saul Alinsky's, you know and his rules for radicals and you know covid was another example of that i mean that was a total experiment and control of people and and softening people up getting them accustomed to being told what to do i mean imagine yeah you got to wear a mask going into a restaurant but when you sit down at the table you can take it off it's okay you're in a well, zone where covid doesn't reach right it's or, actually or worse than being told what to do i realized as an adult this is such a strange time because we are asking permission to do things that we've otherwise always been free to do. I know it, which it, is it's, wild. It's, it's a insidious process that mm. just slowly eats away, eats away. And they're nonstop. They're relentless. They're, they're doing things now as you and I talk that will continue to erode our freedoms. Washington is all about, it's only business is is legislation. I mean, those members of Congress, that's what they do. And every piece of legislation increases the size of the government and increases spending. The very idea that our national debt is in the trillions of dollars. I mean, who can even conceptualize what a trillion is? Mm -hmm. and, and so people... They just blow it off. I can't think anything about that. I don't know how to do anything about it. I'm just one person. I'm, I'm that, that. So away they go. And they, the, the socialists depend on that apathy. And 
just opens the, the door even wider for them to go through with all of their socialist programs that, by definition, attack our freedoms. By definition, do away with religion. By definition, I mean, Margaret Sanger believed in euthanizing people, right? Mm -hmm. uh, she was, you know, the founder of the, the uh, abortion movement, pretty much. Hillary Clinton, you know, worshipped at her feet, wrote her thesis at Wellesley on her. I mean, uh, it was, uh, those people are, are, they're killers, they're murderers, they're, they don't care about people. It's weird that they're heroes to the left because, um, and, and you mentioned him earlier, uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson, Margaret Sanger, they're intensely racist um, and, and openly so. Oh, John, it's so there were weird. There were three people in Washington that more than any other single individuals held back the the civil rights movement held back um, desegregation held back the right to vote held back black america and that was sam rayburn who was speaker of the house richard russell who was a senator from georgia and lyndon johnson who was the majority leader in the senate mm -hmm. they were avid open racists and the reason that and Richard Russell is in my novel Memphis about this. This all kind of ties together in my book about what was going on at the time with the government, the growth of the government, the power, the, the conspiracy, the, 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 the evilness of, of, of the socialist government. But Richard Russell was a master parliamentarian in the Senate. Nobody could match him. Uh, he used that power to stop all pieces of legislation coming forward that would uh, produce equality as, as far as opportunity is concerned for, for minorities in the country. Uh, and as a result of having that power to do that, he was on powerful other committees. So he held the purse strings and the influence and the votes for pieces of legislation. You didn't cross Richard Russell. And yeah. Sam Rayburn from Texas, who happened to have dated my grandmother, actually, back in the day, um, was the same way. I mean, they were, they were, it was a, you know, it was the three amigos, Rayburn, uh, Russell, and Johnson, LBJ. Um, so, yeah, they, but, but what Johnson did was even more uh, hypocritical. He crossed, he, he jumped back out of that threesome and Richard Russell never forgave him for engaging in civil, in the civil rights legislation, the voting rights act, all of the pieces of legislation, the great society that he created. Uh, it, it, I mean, you don't turn over that racist leaf the next day, you mm -hmm. know, he, saw which way the political winds yeah. were blowing and took advantage of that. And he wanted to create his legacy and history of doing, you know, being the most magnanimous person to take care of the issues, the social issues and, and uh, social ills of the country. Uh, by, by, but, but in reality, if you look at it, I don't know, you may not agree with this. I think that, the the welfare system part of the great society is the worst thing that's been visited on the minorities in this country since slavery it is the modern day plantation and it has i i 100 agree with that um and it's it's one of the unfortunate uh weaponizations of the fallout post moynihan report i'm reading charles murray's um book losing ground and he he details a lot of this and of course other economists uh thomas l famously now right um now i i couldn't agree more and it, it's stuff that uh the left has done a great job of keeping the message that you're saying which is true and accurate away from black america um and that's that's something that we've got to yeah through i i think there is and 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 you're a testimony to it there is a um a black middle class that is developing. There is uh, an evolutionary process that's taken place that I think more and more 
minorities are becoming aware of that. The issue is, once again, and it is connecting the dots. And that takes an effort. It took a, a real oh, effort yeah. for, for me. And I, like you, worked in the media. I worked in the media for 30 years before I started this quest of understanding. And it was difficult to get your head around the, the, the full Monty, if you will, of the, of the, the socialist movement and how insidious it is. And I mean, now I, and it, it skews how you look at every event that goes on, you know, in the political, social, and cultural realm you look at it through a different lens you look at it through the lens of yeah well there they go again aren't they smart aren't yeah. they so capable i can't believe we continue to let them do this and the media is their megaphone mainstream media is just an apparatus of the socialist movement i'm firmly believe that and you know i've been saying this for the better part of five years, five or six years at, at this level, I've been talking individually and anecdotally with people, but I've really gotten on uh, and started this. I was interrupted in this effort just to share this with you. I had a, a real tough bout with COVID. I was, um, I was in the hospital for four months. I was intubated twice had three blood transfusions, was on dialysis, and had heart pressures, and was on oxygen, of course, in and out of comas, induced and otherwise. Uh, the medical team, and, and I was jet-flighted uh, uh, to Northern Virginia, uh, well, Charlottesville, to the UVA hospital systems, which I think went a great, a long way towards saving my life. Uh, but I was flown, jet-flighted there, with a tracheotomy and, a, you know, I mean, I was, the, the doctors were telling everybody close to me that you need to just let him go. He's never going to have quality of life. He's got brain damage. He'll be on oxygen. He doesn't want to live this way. Go ahead. That was their protocol. Just, mm. you know, and my children and my fiance were adamant about it. And, and, but they had to fight against that every day at some level. No, my dad's going to live. No, Mike's going to live. Mike's a fighter. He's going to make it. Stop this. We're not going to pull the plug on it. They did it every day. And all of a sudden, I came out of it. They said I was going to be on oxygen even then, and I was. But three, four days after it, I was off oxygen. The thing fell off my nose while I was sleeping. And I was breathing and, and generating 97% oxygen rate. <laughs> they said I would never be wow. off oxygen. Uh, I, I have my own beliefs on it. I believe it was a divine intervention. The doctors say they have no medical reason. They called me the miracle man, quite figuratively. Um, so I believe it was it, the, God's hand was in it for whatever reason. I wouldn't have. And I did have... Um, a divine moment, a divine communication at one level of consciousness in this process. So that kind of sidelined my efforts, not only in completing the novel Memphis, but also uh, moving forward with Save America's Freedom Foundation, which is all about defining the problem uh, mm. and outlining what we need to do to fight to institute the counter-revolution, not a bloody armed revolution. <laughs> Which we always need to say. Yeah. So we have we have just about three or four minutes, and I'd love to spend, um, I'd love for you to take the rest of that time to spend there. I know you've got thoughts, um, and, and maybe we'll reduce an ad because this is important. Um, but what are some of those ways forward? Education's one um, you know, media is one, and I, I'd love to hear your your insight into um, how we. It's a war when we're talking a war of ideas, people. Not where we are not calling for violence here, um, but I just love your insight. Um, and make sure you tell people where they can uh, get a hold of you because time will shrink out there. Yeah, um, it's it's saveamericasfreedom.org. You can email me. 
at Michael at SaveAmericasFreedom.org. Um, well, I think that the first thing um, that has to be done, and this is not just a, a throwaway item, there has to be a, a real concerted effort to inform people to the degree needed that they come to the the unequivocal conclusion that this problem is real and that it has reached the level of severity that for all practical purposes the socialists have won i think that that is that is the main thing that has to be done initially i had some experience um once I left traditional broadcasting, of I, I got really involved in the political process in in Washington, and I was part of a, a quarterly seminar of NGOs, non government organization leaders from out in, in in the country coming to Washington, and we had these seminars on how to move public opinion, and it's quite a process, and it's very difficult, and the and the the, the first thing that you have to do is to articulate succinctly and clearly the problem. People have to engage in that process of learning. Then they have to admit that it is there and that it is as severe as it is. And then th the next level is kind of in tandem is they they have to admit that something needs to be done about it. You, you shake it, you throw it out there and they look at it and beat on it, read on it. And they come to the conclusion that something has to be done. That's one level, another deeper level of realization. And then the final level is the most difficult is, okay, I realize something needs to be done. Uh, I got to commit to doing it or it won't get done. So it is coming to uh, realize, realizing that the problem is there, defining it, understanding that something does have to be done, and then coming to the conclusion that you have to be one of the people that's involved in doing it. I think that is, that has, that process has to happen. Uh, from there, it, it becomes, uh, the strategy is uh, to overcome the, the and take back the levers of power in the country. Then, then you develop the tactics by which we do that. And you know, the, the idea um, that. Um, Safe is is their, their mission, purpose, and vision is might might clarify this somewhere and, and provide a direction. The mission of of the foundation, as I founded it, is to educate and inform the general public regarding the sanctity of life, individual rights, rule of law, the U.S. Constitution, and traditional and Judeo-Christian values. The purpose is to guide each other one step further along the journey to that spiritual and cultural awakening. And then the vision is to reveal a divine presence where you would not normally find it. Hmm. So this, the, the, the traditional American values were based on natural law, the God's law, Judeo-Christian law. And the, Everything stems from that. Freedom, the rights of the individual, uh, the concept of freedom, the concept of one of the basic tenets we were taught, I was, from the time I could speak in church when I was a kid growing up in, in, in East Texas. And it sounds naive and it sounds overly simplified. But if you break it apart and really look at if everybody, if everybody did it, what the world, how it would change the world. And it's very simple. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. What can go wrong if you do that? 
If you treat people with the same respect, the same freedoms, the same integrity, the same opportunity, do what you would do to yourself. It would be a much better place for us to live. And that's real simple. And there's a lot of stuff in between that. But we have to get back to the value of that concept. That's worth conserving. It's worth holding on to. It's worth spreading the word about and bringing people back into that train of thought. Our political discourse is mainly political and economic. There's no morality in it because we now accepted the postmodernism and, and, and moral relevancy. That's by design. That just didn't pop up out of the ether. That's designed by the socialists. First thing to go is morals and, 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 and religious concepts because those are spiritual things. They're not real things you can touch and you can't control those things. And their socialists are all about control. So they have to get rid of that. They do little things, man. Uh, the idea that it's, it's, it's not polite to talk about politics or religion at a social gathering. Have you heard that? Yep. Yeah. My and people life. And, and people do it. They adhere to it. That, that just didn't all of a sudden become part of what Americans did. That was, that was sold to them. Mm-hmm. You're rude, you're crude, and you're socially unacceptable if you talk about politics. And re- because the socialists didn't want us exchanging ideas and concepts and discussing things of importance among ourselves. So they said, no, we're going <laughs> to... Some advertising person said, I bet I can turn that around in six years, and it'll be the yep. anathema. People won't do it. And they did it. And it's, it's destroyed us when we look at what drives wedges in between human relationships. It's those topics. Uh, marriages, it's sex, money, and child rearing, which all of those topics we're not allowed to speak on. And then um, politics and the workplace and these types of things. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, Mike, we're going to have to leave it there. Okay. Uh, but I, I've got to have you back on. I mean, one, we can speak for another hour on the last 60 seconds there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a thing we need to talk about and maybe check out is the, uh, I'll be right quick. The, the other thing that they did, it's similar to don't talk about politics in a, in a social gathering or religion. Uh, they kept, uh, they, they moved that discussion also out of the pulpit. By, mm. by the 501c3 tax-exempt status. If you look back at the history of this rev- the revolution in this country, uh, before the first shots were fired, the fervor and the cauldron of burning that, that erupted into the revolution was first started in the pulpits of churches through the, throughout the colonies. And there's a group called the Black Robe Society that's coming back, that's, that is here today. They were Black Robe Societies, and, they, and they've... Uh, brought that name forward to say if we've if had we, bill cook on the show okay uh, so you know yeah. what i'm talking so that's a that's a that's a whole big discussion that needs to be done as well because if if you, if they don't do that they're whistling past the graveyard because the first thing that socialists do when they get an absolute <laughs> control is get rid of the churches so they don't have to worry about a church or 501c3 status at all so they need to dump that and get real get with the revolution the counter revolution yeah mike you you were wealth of knowledge and this was just really a great conversation um and and i i do mean it i'd, I'd like to have you back on uh, well i would love that thank you so later. much yeah it's All been right. a privilege um, to be here and and the world's a better place because of what you're doing too man well you know? thank you i appreciate that uh, we all one last to- time we'll be remiss if we didn't say um everyone you can uh you can get his book Oh, excuse me. Oh, there it is. There's that pistachio. I made it almost to the end. Mike. <laughs> oh, well, that's good. Well, that's a good, uh, you know. The book is only uh, once. That's all right. By the one and only Mike Hambrick here. It's Memphis Rock DJ and covers conspiracy behind Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. Guys, the link is here. Um, you'll see it on the email as well, but it's right here in the show notes. However, you're consuming this podcast or otherwise. Uh, and, and he's, uh, graciously 
um, offered his email for you to get in contact with him. That's Michael at saveamericasfreedom.org. Make sure you support Save America's Freedom. It's a wonderful foundation um, and, and support uh, Mike and his efforts. And yes. I, I really enjoyed this chat. I did too. Thank you for having me. It was a privilege to be here. Thank you, Joe. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. If that was the first prayer you've ever prayed, I hope it won't be the last. Until next time, this is The Joe Mobley Show.